Valerie Hudson is a professor of political science at BYU, having previously taught at Northwestern and Rutgers, Rutgers University. Her research foci include foreign policy analysis, security studies, gender and international relations, and methodology. Number, she's written a number of articles, and you'd probably want to read the rest of her bio, bio in, um, in your program. With this, we'd like to welcome back, she's been a previous speaker for us, Valerie Hudson. Well, thank you so much. I have, I felt so welcomed last year at the fair conference, and so I was delighted when I was contacted and asked if there was anything else that I would like to present. Uh, and so uh, I'm happy to be here, excited to be here, and I hope uh, that you will enjoy the talk that I'm going to give here today. Uh, and today we're going to talk about polygamy, but probably in a different way uh, than uh, you've heard about it before. That is, we're going to talk about the doctrinal ins and outs of it rather than historical practices. But before we get started, uh, let's see, where do I point this? Okay, just wanted to remind you that Square 2 is growing and thriving. Square 2 uh, aims to be the finest online journal of LDS thought concerning important contemporary issues. I hope you'll check us out at square2.org and consider a submission. Uh, we publish online three times a year, and we would love to see something from the FAIR group. In fact, I think we have seen things from the FAIR group. We'd like to see more things from the FAIR group. All right. Um, if after my talk uh, you're interested in a more detailed, fleshed-out version of what uh, the thesis I'm about to give you, an easy way to find it is to go to square2.org, go to the archives page, search or find for the, the word polygamy, and then you will, you will get an, a link to uh, the unabridged version of this talk. Okay. During the period of time when the restored church was commanded by the Lord to practice polygamy, some practiced it without any discernible hardship, and still others with great pain. Contemporary church members may look back upon that period with acceptance or indifference or discomfort. And I'd like to say at the outset that I don't see that diversity of feelings as harmful, okay? That people differ in their reactions to polygamy, I don't think is uh, the issue. Rather, since the new and everlasting covenant of marriage is at the heart of the work of eternal life and godhood, confusion about the nature and form of lawful marriage ordained by, the God, uh, uh, ordained by God is harmful. Um, women and men may think that gender equality is compromised by the doctrine of polygamy. We need to know more, in other words. The overarching question we pose therefore, is whether God has revealed his mind about these matters. And we believe that he has, specifically in Jacob 2 and in Doctrine and Covenants 132. Why should we rely on these particular scriptures uh, in order to tease out Mormon doctrine about polygamy? Well, I'd like to make reference to an extraordinary statement that the church uh, issued on the 4th of May, 2007. Uh, the uh, statement is actually rather long, but here's a, an excerpt from it. 
not every statement made by a church leader past or present necessarily constitutes doctrine a single statement made by a single leader on a single occasion often represents a personal though well considered opinion but is not meant to be officially binding for the whole church with divine inspiration the first presidency and quorum of the twelve apostles counseled together to establish doctrine that is consistently proclaimed in official church publications. This doctrine resides in the four standard works of scripture, official declarations and proclamations, and the articles of faith. So I think if we want to um, address polygamy as a doctrine of the church, we must sort out what is church doctrine, what we can enter in to the dialogue about polygamy, and what we really can't uh, invite in as part of the dialogue about polygamy. So what is church doctrine? It is what is currently taught, it is what is consistently taught, and it is to be found in official church publications. Specifically, as we've just seen, the scriptures, the declarations and proclamations, and the articles of faith. Now I point this out because um, what I have found is, is that among our faith community, there are still a number of teachings uh, that some may subscribe to and believe are Mormon doctrine that, in fact, are not. Let me give you just three examples. Um, the teaching of blood atonement for murder. The church has come out with an official statement that that is not a doctrine of the LDS church. The teaching that Christ was married. Okay, uh, The church says we don't know if Christ was married. We're not saying he's not, but we're not saying he was. That is not a doctrine of the church. And third, the teaching that Heavenly Father had sexual relations with Mary. Again, the church has announced that that is not church doctrine. Okay, So what is binding upon the church membership is church doctrine. Various church teachings uh, the church does not accept as being church doctrine. All right, let's get back to the question at hand. Many, including reportedly Emma Smith, have had difficulty reconciling Jacob II and DNC 132. In fact, I just saw in the Provo Daily Herald yesterday uh, a letter to the editor uh, in which it was raised, aren't these two scriptures in, in contradiction, which I thought was interesting. Uh, we choose to operate from a different assumption. These scriptures found in the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants come to us without taint of, of, uh, of mistranslation or interpretation over millennia in contrast to the Bible. Therefore, we do not believe that Jacob 2 and DNC 132 could have been mistranslated. In that case, we must either conclude that God revealed something to Jacob contradictory to that which he revealed to, to uh, Joseph Smith, or we must assume that these two scriptures do not contradict one another. I'm going to assume the latter. I'm going to assume that these two scriptures are not only not in contradiction, but in fact reinforce, affirm, and parallel one another. To see how this is so, let's first ask about the principle and purpose of marriage in God's work. Now, we know quite a bit about marriage as an eternal principle. God commands his children to marry, DNC 49. God married our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden before the fall, Moses 3. 
Scripture asserts that persons must be married to inherit the fullness of the Father in the celestial kingdom and that those who are not worthy of the celestial kingdom live as unmarried persons, DNC 132. Furthermore, not only are persons to be married, but they are to be married in the new and everlasting covenant. The Lord states that this type of marriage is by my word, which is my law. In LDS culture, we colloquially refer to marriage in the new and everlasting covenant as temple marriage. From all of this, we understand that marriage in the new and everlasting covenant, or temple marriage, is an eternal principle of the highest importance. And this is so because of the purpose of such marriage. The purpose of marriage in mortality and the purpose of marriage in the hereafter is to further the work of divine love. This work has a twofold nature. The purpose of marriage and mortality is to raise up righteous seed to God, which accomplishment merits for the marriage partners a right to the continuation of the seeds forever and ever. The spiritual rationale which underpins the eternal principle of marriage in the new and everlasting covenant is God's overarching work of love for his children to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man, that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Given this eternal principle of marriage in the new and everlasting covenant, what is the law, the general rule or unrestricted form of marriage? Is there a lawful exception? What is the nature and status of that lawful exception? Let us first turn to Jacob's sermon on uh, this topic. What is the form of Jacob's discussion of marriage? First, Jacob notes a social problem of great severity at his time. The men of his time are taking many wives and concubines and seek to excuse themselves in committing these whoredoms because of the things which were written concerning David and Solomon his son, Jacob 2. The situation is that these great men of Scripture were doing one thing, but God is now saying that those who follow David and Solomon's example are committing iniquity. How are we to understand this apparent contradiction? This is the question that prompts Jacob's short but profound sermon on the law of marriage. In answer to that question, uh, the Lord notes that these men understand not the scriptures and err when they seek to excuse themselves in emulating David and Solomon. The Lord continues, David and Solomon truly had many wives and concubines, which thing was abominable before me. Immediately following this frank judgment, The Lord states, wherefore, I have led this people forth out of the land of Jerusalem. Notice the term wherefore, right? meaning because of this. I have led this people forth out of the land of Jerusalem by the power of mine arm, that I might raise up unto me a righteous branch from the fruit of the loins of Joseph. Wherefore, I, the Lord, will not suffer that these people should do like unto them of old. The use of the word wherefore in these two scriptures... Um, let's see. reveals that part of the purpose in separating the Nephites from the civilization of their origin and bringing them across the ocean to the promised land was to raise up a righteous people who would not succumb uh, to the errors of David and Solomon. How would the children of Lehi act if this purpose had been fulfilled? In the very next verse, we are given the answer to that question. In verse 27, Jacob expounds the law of marriage the rule or unrestricted form of marriage, if you will. 
Wherefore, my brethren, hear me and hearken to the word of the Lord. For there shall not any man among you have, save it be one wife and concubines, he shall have none. The general law or rule or unrestricted form of the eternal principle of marriage is monogamy. That monogamy is the law or rule of the principle of marriage is found in several places throughout the scriptures. Here's an example, Doctrine and Covenants 49. Wherefore, it is lawful that he, man, should have one wife, and they twain shall be one flesh, and all this that the earth might answer the end of its creation. In the beginning, when the earth was empty and sorely needed replenishing, God gave Adam but one wife, Eve, that the pattern of his law of marriage might be set from the dawn of time in the very first human marriage on earth. Joseph Smith said, I have constantly said, no man shall have but one wife at a time unless the Lord directs otherwise. Bruce R. McConkie concurs, according to the Lord's law of marriage, it is lawful that a man have only one wife at a time unless by revelation the Lord commands plurality of wives in the new and everlasting covenant. Of course, taking a plurality of wives outside of the new and everlasting covenant, outside of being commanded to do so by the Lord, is always a grievous sin. Jacob teaches us that monogamy is the general law of marriage and polygamy is an exception to the general law, which exception must be commanded by the Lord before it can be practiced. Furthermore, Jacob reveals the reason the Lord will command the exception. For if I will, saith the Lord of hosts, raise up seed unto me, I will command my people to practice polygamy. Otherwise, they shall hearken unto these things, that is, to take but one wife and have no concubines. With this understanding of the purpose of marriage and the law and the lawful exception of marriage in mind, Jacob's sermon is profound, despite its brevity. Rooted in divine love for his children, God commands men and women to marry. In general, he commands them to marry monogamously. Sometimes he will command them to marry polygamously. Both the giving of the general law and the commandment to depart from the general law are motivated by God's love for us. But one thing is also clear from Jacob's sermon. God is not indifferent concerning how his children marry. He actively and severely restricts the practice of polygamy while leaving monogamy unrestricted. One can be, quote, unquote, destroyed for practicing polygamy without God's sanction, sanction becoming, quote, angels to the devil and, quote, bringing your children unto destruction and their sins heaped upon your head at the last day, unquote. But no such punishment attends the practice of monogamy. Our next question, for whose answer we must turn to DNC 132, is simple. Why is God not indifferent concerning the practices of monogamy and polygamy, severely restricting, as he does, the second, while leaving the first virtually unrestricted? All right, for that we must turn to DNC 132. DNC 132, I think, is one of the deepest and most thought-provoking scriptures in our canon. It's also one, I think, that many LDS wrestle with. So let's wrestle with it, shall we? Um, DNC 132 concerns the new and everlasting covenant of marriage and its place at the heart of the plan of salvation and exaltation. 
Without its restoration, the fullness of eternal life would be unobtainable. Thankfully, as noted in DNC 132, verse 40, the Lord gave Joseph Smith an appointment to restore all things. And therefore, Joseph Smith restored the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. This much is indisputable. What is often in dispute in our culture is exactly what that means. Given the over 150 years that have passed since the receipt of the revelation, known as DNC 132, we are in a better position to settle that dispute. Joseph Smith restored marriage for time and all eternity, which we now colloquially call temple marriage. In restoring the principle of temple marriage, Joseph Smith restored both the general law of marriage and the lawful exception, as elucidated uh, by Jacob centuries before. Put more precisely, Joseph Smith restored the general law of monogamous temple marriage, and he restored the lawful exception of polygamous temple marriage. At the time of the revelation, most scholars say prior to the date given for DNC 132, God commanded Joseph Smith to command the church membership to practice polygamy. By so doing, God activated the lawful exception to the general law of marriage. Thus, polygamous marriages entered into in the temple after that commandment was given by the Lord were, quote, without condemnation on earth and in heaven, unquote. Putting Jacob's teachings together with Joseph's teachings, the commandment to practice polygamy was given by God at that time for the purpose of, quote, raising up seed unto God. However, in 1890, God rescinded the commandment sanctioning the lawful exception to the general law of marriage. Polygamous marriages would no longer be recognized by the Lord and indeed would be grounds for excommunication from the church. This rescinding did not unrestore the new and everlasting covenant of marriage or temple marriage. Temple marriage is a mainstay of our religion and will never cease to be our ideal. The new and everlasting covenant of marriage is still among us, but the commandment to live the lawful exception to the general law of marriage in the new and everlasting covenant is no longer among us. Thus, the restoration of all things does not demand that polygamy be actively practiced among the saints. It merely demands that the possibility of God commanding polygamy, which possibility demands the restoration of temple marriage and sealing keys, exists. And so it does to this day. As long as there are temples and sealing keys among our people, God can, whenever he chooses to do so, command his people to practice polygamy. But the presence of temples and sealing keys does not conversely demand or necessitate that God actually issue the command to practice polygamy. Our contemporary situation is perfectly described in this manner and explains how Bruce R. McConkie could conclude that polygamy cannot be a requirement for exaltation, and why the church does not preach that it is. Let's see here. So we conclude that in restoring all things, Joseph Smith restored temple marriage, complete with its general law, monogamous temple marriage, and the possibility of God-commanded lawful exception, polygamous temple marriage, Thus, we see that God's lack of indifference concerning the manner of marriage among his children that we noted in Jacob 2 persists in D&C 132, 
even with the restoration of temple marriage god is still not indifferent between monogamy and polygamy if he were indifferent his words to us might be as long as you marry in the temple i am indifferent as to whether you marry monogamously or polygamy polygamously but such a conclusion cannot be reached for he persists in actively and severely restricting polygamy despite the presence of temples in our midst Absent a commandment from the Lord to practice polygamy given through his mouthpiece, the prophet, a member of the church would be excommunicated for attempting to practice it. Now, some have suggested that it's simply the illegality of polygamy in the U.S. that is the issue. Well, that actually is not the issue. I think you already know that. Such an excommunication would take place even if the church member were living in a land where polygamy was legal. Even if polygamy were to be legalized in the United States itself, the church would still excommunicate members in the U.S. who attempted to practice it unless the Lord issued the required commandment through the prophet to practice it. Our missionaries are not allowed to baptize polygamists even if they live in countries where polygamy is completely legal. There is no greater spiritual punishment the church can meet out against an offender than excommunication. God persists in making a strong discrimination between monogamy and polygamy, even in the context of the restoration of all things. We now turn once again, I think, to the crux of the matter. Why is God not indifferent between monogamy and polygamy? Okay, when we believe that In Doctrine and Covenants, we will find the light that we need. We go so far as to say that in the scripture, the Lord freely reveals his mind to his children concerning the reasons for his lack of indifference. So let's go there. I think one of the most marvelous elements uh, of the Lord's discourse in Doctrine and Covenants 132 Uh, and then the Doctrine and Covenants uh, more broadly, is the insight it gives us into how the Lord reasons. The argument the Lord puts forward is meant to be understood by his people. You know, I must tell you, as um, a convert to the church and as a member of the Roman Catholic Church uh, growing up, I'll never forget in catechism school when something that didn't quite add up would be raised by the nuns, I would raise my hand and I'd say, Sister McElroy, I don't understand. And she would say to me, that's the beauty of it. That's the mystery of the divinity of God. And I'd be like, (laughs) so I must admit, um, being a rather concrete type of person, it was such a relief, such a wonder to hear by reading the Doctrine and Covenants that God actually wants us to understand why he's thinking about things the way that he's thinking about them. Now, whether we mere mortals can fully understand is another question, but the desire on his part that we understand, I think, is really unique uh, in in the LDS Church. All right, so back to this. Um, Let's make the reasonable assumption that God means what he says and God wants us to understand what he means. So in Doctrine and Covenants 132, the Lord attempts to reason with Joseph Smith in order to help him understand the principles involved in marriage. 
So in uh, Doctrine and Covenants um, section 50, we, we hear, And now come by the Spirit unto the elders of my church, and let us reason together, that ye may understand. Let us reason even as a man reasoneth one with another face to face. Now when a man reasoneth, he is understood of man, because he reasoneth as a man. Even so will I, the Lord, reason with you that you may understand. Wherefore, I, the Lord, will ask you a question. Okay, let's see here. All right, yes. All right, so in DNC 132, we can assume the Lord will reason with us and present arguments that we may understand uh, on the issue of polygamy. And the Lord will begin his chain of reasoning, as he mentioned in DNC 50, with a question, which he then will proceed to answer. So the Lord states at the beginning of the, of the revelation... Let's see here. You, Joseph Smith, have inquired of my hand to know and understand wherein I, the Lord, justified my servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as also Moses, David, and Solomon, my servants, as touching the principle and doctrine of their having many wives and concubines. Behold and lo, I am the Lord thy God and will answer thee as touching this matter. What is the form of the argument concerning the law of marriage in the scripture? The form is virtually identical to Jacob too, which demonstrates the consistency and unchanging nature of the Lord's reasoning on this matter. DNC 132 parallels Jacob too and serves as a more detailed exposition and affirmation of Jacob too. Let's see how this is so. The same historical question serves as the catalyst for 132 as it did for Jacob too. What are we to make of the practice of David, Solomon, and the other great patriarchs of old having many wives and concubines? This time the inquirer is Joseph Smith, he who had previously translated the Book of Mormon, including Jacob too. Okay, this inquiry is again met by a setting forth of the general principles of marriage in the new and after everlasting covenant, then followed by a more specific explanation of the lawful exception of polygamy. Hiram M. Smith's uh, early commentary on the Doctrine and Covenant states, the revelation is divided into two parts. The first part, comprising verses 3 to 33, deals mainly with the principle of celestial marriage or marriage for time and all eternity. And the second, comprising the remaining verses, deals with plural marriage. Now, as to the first part of DNC 132, verses 3 to 33, we have a reiteration, right, that you must marry and you must marry in the temple in order for your marriage to be effective in the hereafter in an order for you to be exalted, okay? And we learn that those who reject temple marriage, okay, cannot have eternal increase, they cannot be gods, but are appointed angels in heaven, which angels are ministering servants. Okay. Now, in the setting forth, in 3 to 33, of the general principle of eternal marriage, temple marriage, marriage in the new and everlasting covenant, there is no mention of polygamy. Indeed, the whole issue of David and Solomon is not raised once in the verses where the Lord discusses in general what eternal marriage is, why he commands it, and why those who reject it are, uh, are condemned. Additionally, this marriage covenant is described uh, in terms 
that do not necessarily imply polygamy at all i mean it's not there in verses three to thirty three it is not until the second half of the revelation starting with first thirty four forward that polygamy is addressed before the lord begins his discussion of polygamy he introduces the case of abraham the lord begins by explaining that because of Abraham's righteousness in receiving all things by revelation and commandment, Abraham hath entered into his exaltation and sitteth upon his throne. As a result, Abraham's seed will continue and will be as innumerable as the stars. A key element of Abraham's righteousness was to enter into the law, which provides for the continuation of the works of my father, wherein he glorifieth himself. The law referred here is the law or general principle that the Lord has been expounding upon up to that point. Marriage in the new and everlasting covenant. Abraham accepted marriage in the new and everlasting covenant. Again, uh, the Lord warns as he does in verse 3, etc., etc., except ye enter into my law uh, and be saved, ye cannot receive the promise of my father. All right. Now, Finally, starting with verse 34, the Lord turns to the topic of polygamy. He begins the discussion with a statement of fact. God commanded Abraham, and Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham to wife. In the verses that follow, the Lord will answer the question he then poses, and why did she do it? The Lord has apparently chosen to explain his reasoning and reveal his mind on polygamy in terms of a specific analogy between two situations that occurred to one man, Abraham. The Lord's subsequent explanation of polygamy centers around an analogy the Lord himself posits between his commandment to Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and his commandment to Abraham to marry Hagar polygamously. In verse 36, the Lord explains, Abraham was commanded to offer his son Isaac. Nevertheless, it was written, thou shalt not kill. Abraham, however, did not refuse, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Now, Given the importance of his children having a correct understanding of their father's mind on this topic, we cannot believe that this analogy was chosen capriciously. This is not an arbitrary analogy being made. Okay? And since it is the only analogy being made, okay, we must pay attention to it uh, and, and try to understand why that analogy was chosen. God wants us to see how and why he views those two situations as analogous. Sacrifice Isaac, take Hagar to wife. By choosing the story of Isaac to be the analog of the story of polygamy, the Lord reveals his mind to us and constrains forever and irrevocably any discussion we, his children, might choose to have on the subject of polygamy. We must understand correctly why the Lord elects to use this particular analogy or we are likely to seriously err in our understanding of the role and place of polygamy in God's plan for his children. 
the first and most telling point to note about the analogy is that the story of isaac is a story of sacrifice the lord is telling us that the term abrahamic sacrifice refers not only to the story of isaac but applies to the story of hagar as well before the lord even delves into the analogy his very positing of an analogy between the Isaac situation and the Hagar situation is revealing. Of all the possible analogies of sacrifice that God has commanded in the history uh, of the world, sacrifice of animals under the Mosaic law, sacrifice of possessions under tithing or the law of consecration, sacrifice of home and country as the early saints did in crossing the plains, sacrifice of your own life as Joseph Smith and others have done. God chooses the most wrenching sacrifice he has ever commanded to serve as the analogy wherewith to instruct us concerning polygamy. The sacrifice of one's own innocent child by one's own hand. This choice of analogy by the Lord is meant to reveal to us that in the Lord's eyes, the Hagar situation is no light matter or run-of-the-mill sacrifice, but rather is like unto the heaviest and most heart-wrenching of all sacrifices God has ever required of man. In positing this analogy, then, Right? We get a parallel. And that parallel is being commanded to kill your innocent son is analogous to being commanded to marry polygamously. Why? Because murder is as grievous a sin as adultery and vice versa. Now, What is an Abrahamic sacrifice? Let's make sure that we understand that. Sacrifice is one of the first principles of the gospel. We know that. And we know that there are various forms of sacrifice. For example, we might say that we're sacrificing to send a child on a mission. That sacrifice is by our own choice, and we know that the goal is one that we desire. Another type of sacrifice might be to accept the consequences of doing the right thing. Right? We might be ostracized or oppressed because our beliefs and behavior by those uh, who believe otherwise towards us is unpleasant. I think we saw this in the Proposition 8 campaign, didn't we? Um, however, it's our choice, and we're very much desirous of that goal. A third type of sacrifice appears from our mortal perspective maybe not to involve agency, though I believe some agency was involved. These are sacrifices of adversity. For example, where an innocent child is born with an imperfect body or accidents or illness take the health or life of persons. Okay? We don't think of those as conscious mortal choices, but some of us believe that there were pre-mortal conscious, conscious choices about some of these things. But the heaviest sacrifice a person can ever be called upon to make, the Abrahamic sacrifice, is slightly different from these other three. In the Abrahamic sacrifice, we are asked by God to make a conscious choice 
in a situation where what he requires of us cannot be regarded as a desired goal from all that we know about god's laws we all understand how obedience to god's laws for example to the ten commandments bring a happier richer and more peaceful life but what if god were to command us to break the ten commandments Reason alone would tell us we would lose the happiness and peace that would come from obedience to the law. But the test of the Abrahamic sacrifice is not a test of reason. It is a test of faith. It is the ultimate test of faith. Remember for a moment what an Abrahamic sacrifice represents. An Abrahamic sacrifice involves at least three elements that are to be found in the story of Abraham being commanded to sacrifice Isaac. One. God makes plain to Abraham a law, thou shalt not kill. Two, God then requires Abraham, an innocent and righteous man, to depart from that law, sacrifice Isaac, an innocent child. And the choice to depart therefrom would seem to erase any joy uh, in Abraham's life. Because the true happiness is to be found under the law. Don't kill Isaac. And three... God provides a means of escape from this departure from the law. An angel is sent to stay the hand of Abraham, and a ram in the thicket is provided by the the Lord, which allows renewed joy from being able to live under the law, don't kill Isaac, once more. All right. Let's go ahead and talk about the Abrahamic sacrifice concerning Hagar. With that understanding in mind, let's go back to DNC 132. Remember, in verse 34, we finally began a discussion of polygamy. We discover that God commanded Abraham to have children, in, case, in this case, one child, Ishmael, with Hagar, who was not his wife at the time of the commandment, and who was handmaiden to his wife, Sarah. Abraham took Hagar to wife, thus entering into a God-commanded polygamous union. Fortunately, rather than just leaving us with this fact, the Lord helps us to greater understanding through his discussion of why. Because this, from, this was the law, and from Hagar sprang many people. This, therefore, was fulfilling, among other things, the promises. Does this mean that in God's eyes polygamy is the general law, and that he's indifferent between monogamy and polygamy after all? We will see this isn't what the Lord is saying. Because the Lord's exposition does not end with verse 34. To make sense of verse 34, we must look at it in conjunction with the rest of the verses that then follow. Immediately after verse 34, the Lord asks, Was Abraham therefore under condemnation? If we accept the position that the Lord is indifferent between monogamy and polygamy, this question is a non sequitur. It makes no sense. The very question itself would, would not be understandable. How can someone practicing a form of marriage about which the Lord is indifferent be perceived to be under condemnation? God cannot be referring to some sort of cultural condemnation by Abraham's peers. We're not talking about Joseph Smith's time when polygamy was culturally unacceptable. We're discussing Abraham, in whose culture polygamy was commonplace and accepted. No one in Abraham's cultural setting would be condemning him for practice polygamy. Why does the Lord ask about this? The Lord's question raises a puzzle for us, and to understand it, we must look to the scriptures that immediately follow. Verse 36 is the great key to this puzzle. In this verse, as noted, the Lord posits the direct analogy between his commandment to sacrifice Isaac and the commandment to marry Hagar. 
In that verse, the Lord says, Abraham was commanded to offer his son Isaac. Nevertheless, it was written, thou shalt not kill. Abraham, however, did not refuse, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Let's be clear on what's happening here. The general law that God commands all to obey is, thou shalt not kill. Then to one innocent and righteous man, at one time he gives a commandment to kill his own son, not a stranger, not a criminal, not an enemy soldier. Right? There is no justification possible for killing your young innocent son. In fact, we know that God destroyed those at Jerusalem for the child sacrifices that they were making there. God has commanded something exceptional of this man, something that goes against all he knows of God's law and for which he can find no possible justification. God is asking Abraham to depart from the law he himself gave Abraham. He requires of Abraham a sacrifice not demanded by justice in the law. In this sense, God asks Abraham to perform a Christ-like sacrifice in similitude of the sacrifice of God and his own perfectly innocent son in the atonement. Because Christ was perfectly innocent, the law could not demand that he suffer and die for others. But Christ chose to suffer and die to fulfill the demands of justice and mercy for others. Abraham and Christ both consciously chose to sacrifice the happiness that they were due under the law to bring about a greater good for others. We know from the account in Genesis that Abraham's choice was felt by him as a sacrifice of happiness. Abraham was not happy to hear the commandment to sacrifice Isaac. Indeed, we believe he felt great sorrow, maybe even some confusion. But Abraham was determined to obey God even if great sorrow and grief befell him as a result. Because Abraham obeyed an exceptional commandment of God and departed from the law, it was counted unto him for righteousness. But his obedience did not turn the departure from the law into the law. God has never since commanded any person to sacrifice their child. In fact, God provided Abraham an escape from killing his son, despite the original exceptional commandment to kill Isaac that God himself gave. In returning to the law, thou shalt not kill, after having to depart from it, sacrifice Isaac, Abraham felt renewed joy and relief in regaining Isaac. Though he undoubtedly felt some paradoxical joy in submitting to God's will in all things, Abraham's joy was not full until the test was over and the escape made. So why is the Lord making the sacrifice of Isaac a direct analogy to his commanding Abraham to take Hagar to wife? We conclude in this situation, as in the situation concerning Isaac, God is commanding a departure from the law something that is, as a general rule, a thing to be condemned by God. That is why the Lord asked, was Abraham therefore under condemnation? According to the general law or rule of monogamous marriage and the new and everlasting covenant of marriage set forth by God himself, and given that God is not indifferent between the two forms of marriage, Abraham is under condemnation. Otherwise, the Lord's question makes no sense. But the Lord answers his own question, Nay, he's not under condemnation, for I, the Lord, commanded it. Verse 35. Thus creating the supersessionary, but still exceptional, law of verse 34. There would be no puzzle and nothing to ask or answer if God was indifferent between monogamy and polygamy. 
But if God is not indifferent between monogamy and polygamy, then a puzzle does arise. A puzzle that is answered by the Lord with reference to an obvious case of a commandment by God to depart from the general law and follow a lawful exception. This, to me, is the strongest possible scriptural evidence that DNC 132 is in complete harmony with Jacob 2, and that therefore the general law or rule of marriage is monogamy, and the lawful exception is polygamy, and God maintains as strong a discrimination between the two forms of marriage in this dispensation as he did in Jacob's time. We can now say why it is that God is not indifferent between monogamy and polygamy. In the Lord's eyes, monogamy is not a sacrifice. It's a blessing. But polygamy is a sacrifice, and not just any sacrifice. The Lord tells us it is an Abrahamic sacrifice. No matter what our human inventory of emotions towards polygamy, joy, sorrow, or some combination of the two, the most mature, the most knowledgeable perspective is that of the Lord, who is stating his mind that he views it as an Abrahamic sacrifice. The Lord himself reveals his mind on the matter through his analogy between Isaac and Hagar. All other things being equal, God is not indifferent towards the type of sacrifice Abraham was required to make because it involves Christ-like suffering. However, as with Abraham's sacrifice, which points to the sacrifice of the innocent Son of God in the atonement, sometimes Christ-like suffering is the greater good and the most loving course of action. Thus, in a sense, despite the suffering involved in a Christ-like sacrifice or Abrahamic sacrifice, There is a joy which comes from knowing the sacrifice is, in God's eyes, the right and loving thing to do. There is a joy which comes from suffering in God's case. It deepens our hope and trust and faith in his goodness. But notice, my dear brothers and sisters, that the presence of joy in a sacrificial act does not remove that act from the category of sacrifice and put it in a new category called non-sacrifice. We will explore this in just a moment. The Abrahamic sacrifice would mean very little to us if we did not discriminate between our desire for the happiness that God's law gives us and our antipathy towards abandoning that happiness even if God commands it. If Abraham were indifferent as to whether Isaac lived or died, God's commandment to sacrifice Isaac couldn't have been a test of Abraham's faith. Likewise, if God were indifferent as to whether Isaac lived or died, there would have been no angel and no ram in the thicket. But the Abrahamic sacrifice is no cold and passionless event. Quite the contrary, it is the greatest passion the human heart can feel. This is an innocent person consciously choosing to release what he knows to be true happiness under God's loving laws because he loves God more dearly than he loves his own true happiness. This is a sacrifice not justified under the law of God. Abraham and Isaac were innocent, and the joy is not complete until the escape is 